0: All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Gestalt Education Show. We're back for round two with Robert Lardner. So uh, we're going to kind of dive deep into Robert Lardner, what makes you so special, and, and the things that we uh, that make you special in the treatment room. So
1: Let's start with uh, something that I know I've been enamored with, and I know you are too, and, and that is muscular chain. So if we just lay a little bit of a foundation. There was in the early 1900s, we've had Lovett, we've had McKinney, Logan in the 70s, then you've had uh, Andre Fleming and their group from Amsterdam in the 90s who've kind of anatomically mapped this all out, mm-hmm. the Thomas Myers. Mm-hmm. So tell who have I missed in that, so who, who also has influenced you in the muscular slings and chains, and how do we utilize it in our assessment and our treatment?
2: Well, um, you know, I think that we saw uh, back in... Um, um, what was it? Uh, back in, in Prague, we came across the chains that were being uh, described by um, uh, Moishishova, yes. the rib chains. Mm. Um, so, she was influential in showing the far-reaching consequences of, of systems in that sense. You know, we, have, um, we can see the biomechanical links of muscles. If we look at the um, work of Myers, we look at the work of, of Flaming and so on, we see them trying to, and of course, Stecco. Oh yeah, how leave that And lot? so on. So we see everybody trying to map out uh, the continuity of function, um, air, both uh, in a very biomechanical way, uh, in terms of what is linked to what and how. Um, so there we have a description. And then, of course, we saw a description from Voita, trying to show this uh, developmental uh, chaining, um, oblique chains, etc. And um, that's what we have. The question now is, how to integrate it into a rehabilitation, a movement strategies, and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Okay, so how do we assess it? How do you? How does Robert Lardner assess it? How do we train it? What are some of the things that you're doing to incorporate this knowledge of these
2: uh, muscular slings? Um, one. Uh, well, the. They are. What, the first thing is this, I try to always imagine these chains, I try to see them in my, in my work. I try to link up everything I'm seeing and assuming that everything is connected until I can prove that it is not. Um, because it forces me to see something in total. Um, and then Again, because we can see the globality of changes of range of motion, for example, that is very useful. When you have an intervention and you see that the range of motion has changed in all four limbs, it gives you a sense of connectedness. Sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so it means then that when I am going to assess, I can look at, uh, I can test chains by just applying resistance to different uh, parts of the body. You just, and see if the patient can resist at mm. all. And um, and this is off weight bearing and weight bearing? Yes, yes. Okay. yes. You can go through both off weight bearing and weight bearing and you're looking to see what breaks down, what does not break down. Where do you see the breakdown? And then you have to use whatever technique you like, to try to facilitate its integration. Now, sometimes, one of the big things uh, which I think is often uh, missed is uh, esthesis. Aesthesis is the quality of, no, of feeling. People must feel in order to move. If you do not have that feel, that awareness of movement, you are unable to change it, and you are unable to monitor it. So, many times, as Yander had said too, he said most, uh, you know, inhibition, that kind of muscle weakness is very, very common and um, it is often overlooked. So, when you are looking at somebody, for example, the person is doing a single leg stance and his foot will not settle down, During the whole 20 seconds you're watching, he's going from lateral to medial, back to lateral to medial, then too much. That's a problem. And I must find out why he cannot settle, he cannot find a center of of locus of motion where he can be more in control. So I must now start a testing and seeing how far-reaching is this, is this deficit? Is it just in his foot? Does it go up his leg? Does it go all the way to his shoulder? How is this going to work? So you must develop or devise a series of tests or provocations that try to give you an answer, and then you go, what if? I do this or uh, stimulate that and do I see a change spontaneously in the balance function of the foot? Does the single leg stand settle down as I would expect it to? So you must um, really start to believe in these chains and to use them uh, both in terms of assessment and uh, treatment. Robert, do you believe there's utility,
1: and I had the same conversation with uh, Carlos Stecco, actually, in if we would all agree that utilization and the activation of these slings are important, does that also mean that potentially we'd be doing manual therapy on these slings to potentially get more length, to get more um, relaxation in these tissues. Have you ever thought of slings like in the manual therapy mm-hmm. standpoint mm-hmm. versus just the activation standpoint? Oh
2: yes, yes. Okay. The two go together. Many, uh, one of the things that we suffer from as human beings are contractures over time. We can contract but it is not easy to, you can't actively relax and stretch something. You have to do it um, either by contracting someone, something else or having someone else do it for sure. you. Yeah, that's, that's, that's it. So when tissue becomes dysfunctional and can no longer just go back to its relaxed state when it's not being used, this becomes a problem. So you have to be able to assess those tissues that are contracted and need to be restored to their extensibility, uh, ideal, excuse me, (coughs) level of extensibility. Without that, you may not be able to um, activate the muscles that are inhibited in the tissues. It can be uh, tendon ligamentous, where we know that some ligaments have a contractile component fascia and also, of course, um, inelasticity within the, the, the connective tissue of the nervous system so that it won't move as far as it should to allow range of motion. We sometimes forget to assess these things because we are so um, bent on the fact that we should have some neurological sign that will indicate adverse neural tension, if we want to call Mm -hmm. it that. But I have seen people who don't have adverse neural tension. Why? Because they don't move far enough to feel it. (laughs) They've learned (laughs) how to avoid it completely. Mm -hmm. So they're not coming into you with signs of adverse neural... They're coming into you with signs of the compensation for it. Mm. So for example, I have a player who can't let his shoulders relax when his arm is stretched out to play tennis. Because by that time, the adverse mule tension makes him sure, his shoulder, yeah. that's it. But he never comes to me and goes, oh, I feel something down my arm, no. He's got neck pain and a herniated cervical disc. But when you look at his picture, you start to realize from his posture that the fascia has not allowed him to develop his chest very far, Mm. and along with that, when you start to examine him, then you start to notice that the shoulder has to come up in order to allow the arm to abduct. If you hold the shoulder down, now he gets (laughs) the the, um, radiating symptoms down his arm, and that you have. (laughs) So, although he's been treated for his neck, That was a consequence of an inability to keep his neck out of uh, the role of a secondary stabilization point.
1: So the debate kind of rages on too, depending on what what camp or silo you're in. Mm -hmm. Do you think that fascia can tighten on its own or do you feel like you know, the mu- the muscular system is what is creating tightness there. And the reason that's kind of a fundamental question, in my opinion, is it would guide the treatment. You mm-hmm. know, like, because, I mean, we have certain people in the world that are saying, you know, that fascia just needs to be specifically treated on mm-hmm. its own with kind of a neglect of the mm-hmm. muscle connection. <coughs> mm-hmm. uh, and, and then you have the, the people in the muscle camp that are like, we don't need to do anything with the fascia. <laughs> we just need to work on, you know, better tone of the muscles.
2: Yeah, it is my experience that fascia um, of course you can injure it in which case it will discard and it will start to contract but in many cases the muscles of fascia being the railroad system that helps to keep trains in line <laughs> so they don't veer off <laughs> into, the, into the surrounding countryside. It's
1: got the best analogy. <laughs> <It's> so <good.
2: laughs> so a fascia develops to guide, to help them not work so hard. It helps to streamline the movement. It says, oh, don't go too far there, don't go too far there, you can stop here, and so on. So if the muscle, for some reason, or the muscle function becomes inefficient and starts overloading the fascia, it thickens, it tightens, because it must still perform its job. So when it comes to treatment, if you usually have to treat not only the fascia if it is there, but you have to treat the muscle because it has to stop overloading the fascial system so that the fascia can remain uh, elastic and do its job. So I'm, I'm, I'm never for this, uh, you know, either-or extremes because they are just... It's laziness. Do what you have to do. Right. Stop trying to make one thing fit all. Right. Why, why can't you treat the muscle and the fascia? After all, we've been treating muscles for years with good results, and we can treat the fascia with good results, but treating the fascia does not negate treating the muscle or the, the way around. Right. You must find out what is wrong. Many, for instance, many women develop Thoracic pain as a result of deep pectoral fascia tightness. They may have great range of motion in their pants, but over the years, the weight of the mammary glands and the use has allowed the deep pectoral fascia to become really tight. Right. You have to treat the fascia. Mm. Now, if the pecs are tight, then you'll treat the pecs. But if the pecs are not tight, leave them alone. So, it's really just logic to me. Rather than taking a stance, Mm -hmm. do what you have to do based on your assessment.
1: Now, Moshishava eloquently described these muscular uh, chains and how they link up, how... Extremity problems can manifest themselves mm-hmm. in rib dysfunction, vice versa. Mm-hmm. Do you 100% buy into Moshishiva's
2: system? Um, I buy into the fact that many tensegrity relationships exist. That there are ways in which you can assess relationships and find out if there's a a, a relationship that works in terms of intervention. Is it important uh, that she's correct in every aspect? Not at all. The principle is that you have a strong response of treating afferents to the ribs on the extremity. That's mm-hmm. the principle. That is where it starts and ends. Right. Then you can, um, you can use that If you can find a relationship through the trigger points or limited range of motion or symptom display, you find that relationship, you gather your data, you intervene, you reassess your data, and you get an answer. Is this worth pursuing or not? If it is not, you don't do it. If it is, you do it. Exactly. So, I... These, these discoveries should serve as templates for action, not Bibles. Mm. They are templates, they are suggestions, they are, this is what I see. And from then on, it is the practitioner's responsibility to test it and use it as a living template and not a biblical reference. Sure. Yeah.
1: When you're doing your trigger point or soft tissue assessment, are you looking for how these trigger points are linking up mm-hmm. in the body?
2: Yes, okay. because they are showing you avenues of tension. Because that's how the body use, uh, thats how the brain uses the body. It is using chains to affect movement. So when there's dysfunction, it is linked up in the dysfunctional chain, and you follow. The main track of this dysfunction, through its expression in trigger points, tender points, uh, altered um, altered uh, tone, and uh, and also altered texture.
1: Yeah. I think trigger points—they're um, so fascinating to me, mm-hmm. you know—because like finding out what the actual cause of a trigger point. Is so multifactorial. Mm-hmm. I've had some good conversations with uh, uh, Shacklock about. Mm-hmm. He actually is the one who introduced it to me. The Kingery effect, where if you have nerve root compromise, mm-hmm. whatever muscles are being fed by that nerve root mm-hmm. will potentially house That's trigger so. points. So, right. so it gets it's kind of complicated. There's there's. It's one thing to be able to palpate them, and it's another thing to understand their etiology and their edifice and how this all started.
2: That's right, and that is why you must keep in in mind that you are dealing with different tissues that can all contribute to this expression. So you are not to jump on any one finding as the cause for treating it. (laughs) That is very (laughs) poor, and it Gamsu you back to Levitt: Do not treat the site of pain. Use it to find out if there's anything else involved. And only when you are sure there isn't, you can treat that point.
1: And just to make it more difficult, we can't exclude the viscera Mm -hmm. as a cause of tension, tone, trigger points, eventually joint blockage. And, you know, as if our job wasn't hard enough, now you have to...
2: You have to expand and force yourself to have this broad vision all the time. It would be nice to narrow it down, but you do so at your own peril. You must, uh, uh, despite all habit and desire, do not become myopic in your conclusions about what you're saying. Just because the last person dragged their leg into your clinic and <laughs> had it herniated does not mean that the next time you see somebody drag their leg in, they have her leg to herniated. Well, I think we
1: kind of circle back too on like the importance of the <coughs> auditing process the auditing because process. we can get rid of a trigger point right now by sticking right. a needle in it. So, you know, are they able to maintain? the changes that you're doing. Right. And that second audit, the next time you see them, may be the most important one because then you're getting a better window in whether or not you've actually gotten into the,
2: the right. key link. Do not kill your indicators by treating them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. not so you must about. be very careful not to start treating indicators that you, yeah, you turn off the smoke alarm does not mean the fire is extinguished, you right. just turned off the smoke alarm. Right. Now you're in trouble because now you don't know where the fire is until something else rings. So you must um, again prioritize your treatment in such a way that you are Uh, Keeping it open until the body forces you to look at a particular area Mm. and says here in, somewhere in here lies the problem. Then you treat that problem. But until then, you have to be careful because you have a road map of indicators and symptoms that will point you in the direction. But if you start treating the very indicators and symptoms and eliminating them well there's no there's no way to point you to anything you could end up at a cul-de-sac and that will be the end of that until someone else comes along and can reignite the inquiry is everything
1: that we're talking about is that what led you to your nociceptive exam and there our listeners might not know what this is but you introduced it to me real, when I was very young, 18 mm-hmm. years ago, mm-hmm. and basically what this is, is it's a couple of key points throughout the body to mm-hmm. assess their, mm-hmm. um, their, I guess their pain threshold in those mm-hmm. certain points. Did you create that nociceptive exam in a way to try to examine these
2: trigger point dysfunctions that we're talking about, or was there another reason for that? <clears throat> the nociceptive exam was actually created by John Iams. And it was an aha moment for me because despite having seen travel and all this um, and been to, uh, seen this moistish demonstration of trigger points, it was this simple, elegant way of going, wow, yeah, just get into the habit of palpating a group of trigger points every time rather than be mesmerized by randomness of (laughs) because if you get mesmerized you'll run into trouble. You have to have a standardized approach. Hmm. Uh, You know, even when I say, okay, let's do a, a DNS position to test, you must standardize it so that you can reproduce that same test in that same person again to see what changes have taken place. So you have to standardize your examination to as much as you can, even if the pool of components which you put into that examination change, but you must have a standard way of administering that exam. So the trigger point, uh, the no susceptive trigger point, idea, came from John Iams. he had it, and then I modified it over time depending on what I really was interested in.
1: And it's in this book, right? I think it is. We'll, yes. uh, yeah. Maybe we'll attach mm-hmm. it, yeah. because I do think this is a, it, it really helped me out a
2: lot. Yeah, it gives you a basis to say, okay, this is the current status, I'm going to do this, and then I'll go back and have a reassessment of the global effect of that intervention. And that that reassessing of global effect is much more important than local effect. (laughs) Local effect can be very transient, and local effect gives you the indication that it has not made any big impact on the central nervous system. Mm. Because the central nervous system it's like the Wizard of Oz. I mean, you have to make it speak and pronounce on something. It has to say something to you back. And if it doesn't, well, it hasn't noticed it. Right. So you have to go at it again. Do you utilize dry needling or anything for trigger point therapy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. I think it is very important. Uh, sometimes it is kinder to the patient than your thumb.
1: <laughs> right. I, I, yeah. yeah, you can
2: only go so deep. And right. then it's just not... Uh, feasible but the dry needling is elegant it will go far deeper than you can reach and it is there's much less resistance to it and it is quicker so it is important to have uh, uh, access to different techniques that will allow you to reach different depths of tissue now
1: in Levitt's body of work one of the modalities that he talked about about being able to remove trigger point from a muscle would be Mm. Post-isometric relaxation. Mm-hmm. There's been some critics as the years have kind of passed by that have said, you know, PIR is more like spinal cord reflexes. Mm-hmm. Therefore, maybe it's not truly changing the trigger point long term. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What do you do? You still utilize
2: post-isometric relaxation, or or not? Um, sometimes I do, but I think that at this point, there are so many things you can do that there is no, there's no honor in just using one approach. The, the quest is to summate the afferent input. So I may use post-isometric relaxation, but I will usually layer on other techniques that are aiming to get uh, uh, to the relaxation of that trig point. We have, and you know, Um, The two principles that I think of very much are uh, reciprocal inhibition, uh, co-contraction, and of course you have autogenic inhibition. Mm. So in PNF, all three are utilized, so why would I just throw out two and lose one? I I have co-contraction functions where I'm using the antagonist to inhibit the agonist, I have reciprocal inhibition where I'm doing the same thing, but in co-contraction I'm using both to activate sure. and even out their tone and relax and see what happens. In reciprocal inhibition I'm using one activity to inhibit the other. And then I'm using tiring out of that muscle to inhibit itself. So there are, there's there three techniques of practically equal weight. Uh, and probably I think the ones that involve other muscles is more important Mm -hmm. than the one that only involves the same muscle. So I would say that Mm -hmm. co-contraction and reciprocal inhibition are very powerful. They're probably more powerful than post-isometric relaxation because they are involving more loops within the system to affect that and therefore you are speaking to the wizard (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> yeah, Directly. Yeah, you have the, yes. let's
1: regroup on muscle testing. So I okay. think what we need to do is we probably need to have you produce an argument for our listeners on why that should be part of a routine assessment. And I know you've been heavily influenced by MAT originally, I think with Rozkop. Bueller, you know, yes. Yes. So yeah, let's start the conversation on muscle testing.
2: The phenomenon of muscle testing is one of uh, circuit integration. Can the muscle meet your resistance in time and space? I don't, so much is, is bandied about, again, just like manipulation. Manipulation is mobilization. Then you can infer all the other yeah. things about it you like. It is the same thing with muscle test. A muscle test asks a muscle to ramp up its force in a timely fashion against a foreign force. That is all. And I want to know, is the activity well-coordinated enough that it can do so? Basta. Now, what I infer from that test is quite a different matter. Um, I, uh, if I find that a muscle has an inability to keep pace with my increased resistance, there is a problem with that muscle. Because when I have a muscle that is not affected, it can keep pace, and it can keep pace every time. So, All I am asking is this muscle, does this muscle have the integrity and the ability to ramp up its resistance in time with my own applied resistance to the lever it's attached to? And then I have an answer. And this is the difference between inhibition and weakness. If I get a muscle that cannot do this, and I try to facilitate it, and it still cannot produce force. I know it is weak. But if I facilitate a muscle, wake it up, and I redo that test, and the test comes back strong, meaning the the muscle is now able to do that, I consider that muscle to have been inhibited. Mm -hmm. So that is really the the difference. The importance of, why would you use this, because Many muscles can be inhibited, but they're not weak. (laughs) They're unable to produce force, but they're not unable to produce force because they don't have the potential to. They just do not have the coordinated ability to master the fibers in time to produce the force. And the treatment for that is very different from the treatment for a muscle that is weak, which means it has not even the potential to produce the force because it cannot. Uh, It has maybe not enough fibers. They all work hard, but they are not strong enough. Mm. So we
1: have hundreds of muscles in our our body, Robert. So how do we, we of course can't test every muscle in our body. So what are some of the key muscle tests that you would do on a routine examination?
2: Um, I tend to to test, well, um, the test, uh, the muscle tests can serve uh, two things. One, it can be a test of the the muscle itself. I just want to know, does this um, bicep work or is it inhibited? I can also look at this inhibition because I'm going, I'm going to find out if This uh, uh, I just want to know if any muscle in this quadrant (laughs) is inhibited or right. Yes, so I may be just looking for data. Is there any weakness in the in the in the uh, in the right arm? And so I test a few muscles and I look for that. And I test muscles that are often used. Okay, or I am looking for an indication of. of nerve involvement. So I somebody has a, sciatic, a sciatica and I go, well he doesn't seem to have pain much past the knee or it's beginning to get to the knee, but I need to know if the motor function in that leg is impaired at all and could it be related to his beginning sciatica. So I will test distal and proximal muscles to see if there's any weakness, so to speak. And when I treat the back, I will come back and retest those muscles. So I won't treat the weakness that I find. I'm just using it to find out now if my intervention on treating the back has that far wow, yeah. reach. Good audit. Because it is not... I remember once we had a discussion where um, if you Let's say that patient came to me and he had no symptoms past mid-thigh. And he says, I want to go skiing. Can I go? Well, it would depend on the integrity of the strength he has in that leg. And I would not send him and go, well, you can go skiing because I'm just going to give you some cobras and you can go skiing. Because what if... Those tests did not improve with the cobras, and were not related to his back, and I send him skiing on a weak leg, and he gets injured. Here's his ACL, or, yeah. <laughs> there, therein lies, I have been uh, an incompetent therapist. Now, if I tested and gave him cobras, and the strength came back to his leg, I say, well, probably you can go skiing, just do the Cobras, because that will (laughs) keep, keep your legs strong. Right. Yes. So there is a responsibility in making sure that you have done sufficient data collection so that you do not leave your patient exposed to risk. So muscle testing is very sensitive. It is one of the most sensitive things you can do easily. There are many other physiological metrics that you can use, but they're not easy to do. I can, you know, pupillary reflex back and forth or, or blood pressure, heart rate variability are not easy things to do with one patient after another, after another, after another. They are too specific, and you will need equipment, you know. but a muscle test. You can learn to muscle test in a day. In,
1: uh, in MDT... They, do, they teach something that's pretty fascinating where if you have somebody who's got a directional preference in their back, let's mm-hmm. say, and you check hip abduction, once you determine if they do have a directional preference, you can make that patient strong again. Mm-hmm. Let's just say extension was the directional mm-hmm. preference. But then if we go back and we flex them, mm-hmm. then you can immediately make them weak again. Mm-hmm. What's the mechanism?
2: It seems to be a, a mechanism of nociception, that once you introduce nociception, the thalamus has to decide what has priority, and nociception has priority <laughs> over many other functions. So um, the explanation that has been given is that between force production and incoming nociception, incoming nociception temporarily wins and therefore, force production is compromised for a time. Um, So you're not bought into that this is like a disk nucleus moving thing? Oh, no, 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 no. It is too subtle and it it would confound the very findings that the NDT program itself has come to find because there is no indication that there must be a honking herniation or bulge at
1: that point right, right. for the muscle. And In her- the McKinsey the people brain. wouldn't say that. I was just curious to like yeah, throw no, that out there. This
2: is a purely, I would say, a purely neurological relationship. It is not a biomechanical relationship because uh, we have, you know, we have always looked at uh, nerves and the muscles they innervate as the only relationship that occurs. And yet we know this is not true. Um, I can have an upper cervical problem that gives me weakness of my biceps. And we know that the innervation <laughs> is not linked to Yeah, exactly. biceps. Or I can have a lower cervical problem that gives me weakness in the deltoid or, or some other muscle that doesn't really biomechanically make sense. Right. And yet it's there. <laughs> and yet when I treat the neck, the weakness disappears. Right. So we... We must be humble enough to, and be open enough to these relationships that we do not understand, but which have a, rep- uh, a, um, a, a, a phenomena that can be repeated, that is reproducible time and time again. Because that is what gives you information that someone else may miss and can be vital to treating Patient in front of you because they may not be able to give you that kind of data because they're not even aware that it exists at mm. the time. Interesting, Interesting.
1: there's been a, a resurgence in muscle activation technique mm. recently because there's a famous golfer, Bryson DeChambeau, mm-hmm. who uses uh, mm-hmm. Greg Roskop. So, and I think this is where we get to like a critical crossroads in mm-hmm. the conversation on muscle testing, which is. Okay, so you've found a muscle that is testing weak. What's the intervention? You know, and I know muscle activation technique. They have their own mm-hmm. protocol. In Robert Lardner's paradigm of treating the patient, once you find that weakness, what are your tools that you now use to reintegrate that muscle in? And I know that's a broad. Mm-hmm. It's a broad
2: question, but okay. As I said, the weakness found uh, is an indicator until it is not. So. I must first rule out that there is a spinal cause for this weakness. That's uh, automatic. Uh, and then I must also keep in mind that uh, there is a, a tensegrity cause for this weakness, mm-hmm. meaning that the patient doesn't have the stability enough uh, to produce a, a good leverage, uh, cannot access leverage systems to give me my strength in that plane. So that is why the treatment sequence is kind of fixed. I must unravel the posture, I must restore postural uh, uh, alignment in some way um, and I must improve the bracing function. And then I retest and see what is going on. Because if I've improved those two things, and that weakness is just due to those two constant stresses, then I have an answer. Mm -hmm. If not, then I rule out the spine. And then I come to the more regional areas, and then local. And I always do that in that sequence, so I'm not jumping to conclusions about the findings, about the muscle test.
1: Uh, Okay, (laughs) perfect. Because
2: otherwise you will get lost in the weeds because you start acting on the muscle test itself. The muscle test is a muscle test. It doesn't tell you anything about the muscle. It doesn't tell you. It just says, I can't produce force against your force in this position. End of story. What should I do about it? I do not know yet until I prove to myself that all other systems are pretty okay and this is the problem.
1: And I think this all this information has probably culminated into your DNS manual therapy course yeah. and Taylor's attended uh, it from beginning to end so maybe he could uh, jump in here too. How has that class evolved? What made the class evolve?
2: The class evolved from my clinical work. I thought that um, it was necessary to teach DNS, but it was necessary in the clinic to show the integration of different uh, principles that really go into treating a person. You you can't choose one aspect and just use it. It is not very effective Mm -hmm. because the person who comes to you often has multi multifactorial problems that are layered one on top of the other. And you must be prepared to sort this out. And it ranges all from the physical to going, you know what, this problem, this patient has a more psychological problem than they have a musculoskeletal problem. And make the appropriate suggestions for referral to somebody who can help them better. in so doing, I thought, you need to present the awful truth.
0: Of
2: <laughs> 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 <Yeah>. <laughs> that it is not as simple as just putting somebody in a squat position or putting somebody in a creep position and hoping for the best. Mm-hmm. There, People come to you with often very strong problems, and by strong I mean... Their contractures are years old. These are not kids who will easily give up their muscle um, patterns (laughs) with a little encouragement. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to fight them all the way to the bank to get them to give these patterns up. They have to become aware that they're there and then you have to give them strategies to break this down over time because they're not in habilitation, they're in rehabilitation. They've already acquired some bad patterns.
1: The great clinicians do this too. The, the next level down a clinician, they're constantly working on their patients' compensations and adaptions, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And that's, oh man, is that ever a fragile? That's thing. right,
2: don't work on those. Right. They're not gonna help you. Um, so for instance, I mean, when you look at gait, can you weight transfer from one side to the other efficiently? I can walk you on the treadmill and tell you how much you should lean forward and tell you to swing your arms. It won't help, because the basic building block of weight transfer is, is not functioning. Right. Um, so, uh, when you, so that was my frustration, and I thought, you know, it's nice to teach parts of this. You can teach technique, but you should teach principle you should teach how to think about something and how to order and structure something. At least, if you show that, the person can go home using very different tools, but still order and structure it in a way they can use. So it is an example. Again, it is not a Bible. It is an example of how you can look and think through the problem that you're seeing and how you can structure a treatment, whatever that treatment turns out to be. So that is why I created it. And I was um, telling uh, Taylor that it has changed a little bit too. It has changed quite a bit because as my understanding and time has passed, I have changed the, the order, I've come to understand what was a better order, uh, sequencing, um, where to put things, what to take out, what worked, what didn't work so well, and so on. So it is under, it's kind of um, revised, and being revised as my, you know, as uh, as I get to see relationships that I didn't uh, see before. So that's why I, I taught it. I think one can teach a technique or an approach, and then you must teach the integration of that approach clinically. Yeah. Otherwise it dies on the vine. You find people just mouthing about one particular aspect of treatment and making as if it's going to do everything and it's, it's not. Mm-hmm. Well you I think
1: consulting is so much easier than integrating. <laughs> well, you know, like yeah. the true integration pieces is, is so tough. Actually when we were with a uh, great cook he said something good he said like he'll have an idea and, and then it takes, it takes him a year to get that to the point where it would ever be taught. And I thought that was, that was humbling for me to hear that. That's a, a year's a long time, you know. It's but through trial time. and error to yeah. see, like, you know. It
2: does. And I remember when somebody said, well, you know, um, why don't you teach part two? I go, part one's a mess. I don't know what you. The sequel never is good. Exactly. The sequel does. The, the, the first book is a mess, what do you expect? I, I haven't even played that one. I mean, uh. So it's taken a long time, and actually during this, this pandemic, I was able to sit and watch Paint Dry, and have my mind work on this. It'd
1: be creative again. And be and, creative, and, yeah. and actually
2: go, oh, those slides don't even belong there. You know, and I could take them out, and I would test things with patience, and go, oh, no. This is what should go in this, and I was able to map it out better. And from then, uh, it grew into okay. Now I can have uh, part one, which is really the core, uh, the canister, and the four pro- beginning of the four proximal joints. And then part two is integration of the extremities into this, mm. because the 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 um. How patent the core is, of course, automatically affects what the extremities are going to do. So, you have to have an idea that yes, I've scanned the the central area, the axial skeleton, I've done the best I can for it to give maximal potential to the extremities. Right.
1: And I don't think you'd ever be wrong on any patient with starting, you know, with Abdominal wall, things like that. But I think the the really good clinicians they understand that, but they're able to like they've kind of earned the right to take a shortcut. You can
2: take a shortcut, and you, what if you know you're taking a shortcut? A shortcut that's great. If you don't, <laughs> that's dangerous. <laughs> that's the thing. Do you know you're taking a shortcut? Because if you do, you can always come back and, and look at the trees and rearrange yeah, yourself exactly and that. take the longer route in case you've missed something. But if you didn't even know that you were taking a shortcut, you're in trouble. Because that patient is, is going to lose out. Screwed. Yeah.
1: You said something in passing that I think is really good for people to hear, which is basically, in different words, I think I heard you say that principles are what's very important. What the modern-day student is wanting is they're wanting an algorithm this gets a result, but I think this is dangerous in the ability of the doctor to learn how to critically think. And, That's right. and uh, do you have any ideas on that? Like for the,
2: I think that the way in which uh, I think, unfortunately, the way in which the professions teach are crippling because they do not insist. On an integrated viewpoint of the body. They can pay lip service to it, but when it comes to the classes, they are absolutely divided and structured in such a way that the patient, that, that the practitioner comes out with everything boxed and separated into uh, different, uh, in different places. And then you spend the rest of your professional oh, yeah. life trying to mix and match this uh, without, uh, without going mad. I think that, uh, unfortunately, that is it. And secondly, the time constraints that are imposed by economic demands make it very hard for people mm-hmm. to spend the time they need with the patient to understand what is going on and therefore shortcuts are the order of the day mm-hmm. each each practitioner must decide why he is doing what he's doing why did you become a chiropractor if you didn't want to really help this is ex-
1: existentialism here like mm-hmm. why do you, why do i exist if like what you am i
2: didn't really want to help <laughs> why You're did I become a physical I want therapist? to make a lot of money exactly you can, if you want to do that go do it with paper <laughs> don't do it with
1: people's lives Don't <laughs> awesome. yeah. do it with people's lives yeah well lives. said
2: if you want to become a physical therapist it is because you care About what you will be doing. And therefore, you must not bow down to someone else who will dictate how you will practice to the point where you can no longer do a good job.
0: Heard it a million times before.
2: That Mm -hmm. is awful. It is unethical. Mm -hmm.
0: Did you have a question? Yes. Oh, no, I was just going to kind of finish this up and Mm -hmm. wrap it up a little bit. I, I think that's a really good point. I think, you know, going back to your manual therapy course, the thing that I always appreciate and get to sit down with you, with Brett, with the people that we've been able to is that you keep coming back to the integration word which is what gestalt is all about right that's what we're all trying to do is figure out how to integrate all this together and how to how to put a, a bow tie on a on a patient visit that yes, right. you'd be proud of mm-hmm. like you're saying that yes. you'd be, You know, you go to bed at night and you you lay awake. You still think about the things you could have done, but you feel good about the the service that you gave. So, um, and that's what I think I loved about your manual therapy course. uh, Because it added so many different aspects that I had never seen, Mm -hmm. a different perspective on muscle testing, uh, the trigger point chains. And I think just like you having uh, an insatiable curiosity with a patient. Mm I think that's what makes you an artist. I mean, it really is, and that—that's what makes you know the the best of the world. The best of the world is this, like curiosity about these things that may seem insignificant to another person, mm-hmm. but to you may mean you know the difference in that case. So um, I I think that's what's you know uh, so amazing with this conversation we've had. Now we we're on for two hours basically with Robert Larder, <laughs> two and a half hours. But uh, I think uh, uh, you know I could sit here and listen to you talk forever because you have so much experience built in and. Uh, I've heard it from several people that I, I, you know, trust their opinions that Robert Lardner has the best hands that they've ever felt. And I think the reason being is because of that curiosity. you paid attention for now how many years have you been in practice? Fifteen. Yeah. <laughs> so you paid attention to every single practice and every single visit. And yes. uh, you've built all those years of, of experience in your hands. And that's what we're trying to get these people to uh, that are listening right now to get them you know, enthused into having yes. that curiosity and to take the time to build those memory traces in your hands. Yes. Robert
1: has an ability, too, to like look at a system and kind of pick out what's good and I think that's a huge good quality because I think the typical human being is so binary right now that they can never just think somewhere you know you got to be all in or burn it down yes
2: that's right and and
1: your ability to like whether that's information in a book or because I consider myself like I'm always searching also and I feel like Anything that I come to you, like you're the one person in the world, like whether it's PRT or whatever it is, like you've heard of it, you've tried it, you know something about it. So I can always bounce ideas off you because you've basically, you've, you've kept the doors open into so many different disciplines and so many different textbooks. Treatment modalities, I mean it's it's literally quite amazing and, and to be honest, it's very it's very inspiring. So um, yeah. thank you. Absolutely. Well
2: I watched Professor Levitt <laughs> 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 and I thought, now that's a practitioner I'd like. To emulate. <laughs> if I can emulate that, I be. know. If I can emulate him, I'd be happy. Yeah. Because that is a quality that uh, made him so admirable in all the years I knew.
1: Well, and you said too, just a good human, you know, I mean, besides being best in the world at what he's Uh, doing, just... Mm -hmm.
0: Yes. don't be a dick as we say yes. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, rule number one don't <laughs> be a dick <laughs> no, it won't get you, awesome well if we could just wrap this last episode up I think uh, Robert thank you thank you so much thank, oh, you, thank you for the friendship <laughs> all the years yeah. of- holy smokes well, and, you, uh, 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 be looking out if you see Robert teaching a course near you please go I mean we're uh, going to have him we're going to have him down to our place I think year. that's a no brain yeah. I was going to say he looks like he's booking a flight to St. Louis Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, anyway uh Guys, keep being curious, integrate things that, yes. uh, revisit maybe things that also you've maybe dismissed in the That's past. True. You know, come back to them, see if there is a, a spot that it could fit in. And Always
2: then, ask what if. Yeah. Yeah. Just what if I did this or that? Important. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And if you fail, try it again. <laughs> awesome. All right, guys. Well, Good luck on Monday, Uh, keep crushing patience, and uh, keep having a a great curiosity with each and every portion that you come across. So uh, I know I'm I'm better off for this conversation. I got a lot to re-listen to this a couple times. So thank you, Robert. (laughs) Thank you. Wow. (laughs)